Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelicone. And tonight we are bringing to you episode number 60, the top five films with compelling female leads. Uh, Frank, uh, happy birthday, first of all. Thank you. Um, uh, second, the other big thing that happened today was uh, the Oscars came out, the Oscar noms. Mm. What did you think about them overall? Um, I was actually kind of impressed overall. Um, I'd seen a decent amount of the films represented so I'm, I'm interested to see yeah i was i was surprised by how many i'd actually seen so far i still haven't seen the irishman and i won't see the irishman yeah i'm because... a little annoyed by that personally but um i mean i understand like why they would feel like they need to nominate it why because it's a lifetime achievement thing sort of i mean look it's it's a fine movie it's just i'm just not you, interested you've in... seen it enough times like same sure. same theme same setting same characters that I don't know. Like, why Why do you need to make it again, I sure. guess? Yeah. <clears throat> For someone that complains about, like, the, I don't know, like, the amusement park nature of, like, superhero movies and isn't able to realize that he's just, like, doing the same thing but with crime movies, I don't know. Yeah. How do you feel about the Joker getting the most nominations for... Was that surprising? No. No? With the amount of, like... Like critical acclaim and public interest in that movie, like it makes sense. I mean, it's it's really rare when you have a movie that makes so much money and simultaneously is so like beloved, almost universally by like the critical community. That I mean, how are you not going to nominate it for all that stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I only looked at um, you know the 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 normal like top whatever six, um, major categories. So director, film, and then lead and supporting actor and actress um and i was fine with everything i thought that that almost everything seemed like it was merited even the stuff that i haven't seen it wasn't like one of those years where i don't know something like i always go back to the king's speech because i hate that movie but like where it's something like that where i just think that it's they just feel like they had to nominate i'm sure yeah yeah, no, I, I understand exactly what you mean. I mean, we talked about this during when we filmed our reintroduction, but how we neither of us really particularly care about awards necessarily. Yeah. Um, they are just a publicity stunt in a lot of ways, especially especially now, I think, compared to even 20, 30 years ago. But um, it's funny because when I was a kid, Throughout my teens, I used to love watching the Oscars. Like, I would watch the Oscars Same from here. start to finish every year. Absolutely. I would usually um, have some sort of snack for myself, and mm-hmm. then, like, I would play I would play Risk by myself and just sit there and, like, sit on my bedroom floor and watch the Oscars. Yeah, I, I understand. I probably would have made Elio's pizzas and watched the Oscars. I don't, I Although my remember. mom liked the pageantry of the Oscars, so she usually watched them with me a lot. I think the last Oscars I watched in any capacity was um, maybe the year the Hurt Locker won. So, huh. what's that been, like seven or eight years? Yeah, I think that was like 11 maybe or something like that. Um, And I haven't had any... I mean, I don't have network television. Like, I haven't had cable television. Yeah. So... That was the only year a female director won the uh, Oscar for Breast Director. Yeah, I guess it's possible this year, right? Nope. Well, for best okay, so a female directed film could win for best picture. But it could, yes, yeah, which is I think director. only little. I think only Little Women is. But I, I want to say that there's only 
What's the the cat best picture has like has like twenty nominees. nominations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 best, I think it's ten now. Yeah, best director is only the the, the top five. five, right? Everything else is five, but best picture I think has been expanded to ten now yeah. for the past five or six years or whatever it is, which I think is obnoxious, but. And I think it's part of that publicity stuff. Right, only can... to just draw on as many people as... So, so you can have a movie like... I mean, I don't think there's any real block... I'm, I guess Joker's obviously a blockbuster in like the very real sure. sense of the term, but... But now you can slap on Oscar nominated for Best Picture and re-release it for three weeks and try to get some more money right. out of it. That's how you can nominate something like Jojo Rabbit that probably made like $10. Sure. Which yeah. I really want to see. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'll be interested to watch it. Um, he's a, He's an interesting... The, one, the thing I think is the most interesting about it is there's three movies that were made, two two movies, three movies that were made for Netflix. Yeah, the two Popes, Marriage Story, and, and the Irishman, Irishman that yep. are all nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, um, and that says something about the power of like, yeah, best. after years of even like Scorsese himself kind of decrying <clears throat> the format, you know how it's like kind of pulled, I don't know, like a decent amount of um recognition and importance that it doesn't matter that it's released like directly sure. into theater no i mean netflix i think netflix took <clears throat> the criticism that was out there about their movie selection seriously in the past year um i mean obviously they're spending tons of money on original movie properties now because they're going to end up losing just so and television they're just right. putting tons of money into their own product because they're going to lose so much but i think one of the primary criticisms is that their movies were five out of tens to seven out of tens and sure. i think they've took taken that criticism seriously and is trying to woo big name filmmakers to make movies for them so that they can have these opportunities to be uh you know, at the table when it comes to the award season. And uh, I've watched two out of those three, <laughs> just not the Irish. And, um, and yeah, like the, I, I, I thought both were good. Um, I thought marriage story was better, but the Jonathan price performance in two popes is fantastic and who is it him and malkovich right no nah, malkovich is in the new pope which is a tv series oh, okay and it's hopkins is the um uh the, the other the, that, the that intermediate popes. pope i can't remember who he was that ben- the, is, is that the nazi pope yeah <laughs> yeah the nazi pope yeah okay. uh-huh uh ratson i always think john ratzenberger like the guy who played Cliff. he on. should be the pope <laughs> um <clears throat> But Cliff Clavin, right? Is that that's John Ratzenberger? Cliff Clavin is, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and the voice of uh, what, Mr. Potato Head, right? Yes. In... <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Uh, I only remember that because I, uh, Brandy was telling me not too long ago that uh, they actually, when they did four, they re they they took all of the voice work they had from him, and cut it so he could still his voice could still be in the movie even though he had passed away i didn't um, know that john ratzenberger died yeah I when didn't. did that happen i don't know we, we must have missed it oh huh. yeah i don't that know definitely how. deserved a shot right yeah i mean yeah cliff clavin deserved yeah but um marriage story i know that you're like me and the fact i think i joked about this already but the fact that like uh, noah baumbach like i'm watching a noah baumbach movie in 2019 shows 
what this podcast has probably done to me now right. in that it's actually got me back into watching contemporary film again um, or film in general, I guess. But the fact that I'm watching a Noah Baumbach movie after like the squid and the whale is my number one go to for right. how much I started to hate cinema. Um, yeah. And it's good. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good movie. It's worth watching. It's, it's, uh, I mean, they're both really compelling leads. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, it's my, (laughs) not that I have a large, uh, filmography to draw on, but it's certainly my favorite Adam driver performance. He's incredible in it and she's really strong too. And so is Laura Dern. Um, as much as I hate him, he's, um, he's a good actor. Yeah. You know what? I finally, we, we had this discussion when we talked about Don Quixote. Yeah. What's that movie called? I don't even remember. It's like the life and times. The no. splendiferous misadventures of Don Quixote and <laughs> right? pretension yeah. land. I yeah. I think I was the life and times. I think I'm thinking of Jimmy Reardon, but um, whatever we were talking about, and I couldn't place where, like he looked like somebody to me. What it is, is he is a poor man's Brandon Roth. Isn't Brandon Roth a poor man's Adam Driver? No, well, I think in the looks department, I'm because Adam Driver's kind of goofy looking, sort of, yeah. But so, but he acts very similar to him, except for he's like, like ten times probably more nuanced in terms of his acting ability. And I really like Brandon. I Roth. like Brandon. Like, Roth I, I, I think he's a fun guy, and like I think he does certain roles really right. well. Um, I think he's limited probably into what he can do really well. Uh, we'll probably never get to find out, honestly, because I think after Superman, he's just been cast in a certain light, and that's going to be him for the rest of his career. I love him in Legends of Tomorrow, but, um, but yeah, Adam Driver is like the kind of like the mode perfect from an acting standpoint of that guy. Um, that's exactly who I've been trying to think of, and. Who yeah, I, I never would have made that connection when you were talking about Don Quixote. But he, he has something else to him, too, and I can't think of what it is. There's, like, another famous actor that he looks nothing like, um, but is he's similar in the way he, like, acts and delivers lines. But it's really good. It's a good movie. It's worth watching. Um, I'm trying to think if was, there was something else I wanted to bring up about the Oscars, but it's still leaving my mind. Oh, uh, so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won... Golden Globe for best comedy movie, um, which is right. silly, but it would seem right now it's the odds-on favorite. Maybe if there was betting to probably win the Oscar, do you think that's out of what you know so far? You think that's warranted? I mean, I don't, I don't read like the sheets anymore, like any mm-hmm. of the pub, like the trade publications. So I have no idea. Um, it's probably my choice. Yeah. If I had to pick out of that list of yeah. stuff I've seen, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we've talked about this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's right up there with my favorite Tarantino movies of yeah. all time, and I think it's probably his most mature movie and his most restrained movie, like a couple scenes notwithstanding. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would like to see it win. I really want to see Parasite. Yeah. Um, and I really want to see uh, Jojo Rabbit, like mm-hmm. those two movies. I think it's interesting that um, Uncut Gems didn't get nominated. Yeah. Considering, like, 
the huge amount of like hype it felt like there was going into that movie. Yeah, and there was a big push, I think, by <clears throat> the production company to get Sandler nominated, and it just, yeah, didn't, um, just didn't happen. A24? Yeah, it's, think, a, yeah, is, it uh, is, it's A24, yeah. yeah. Which to me is, um, I mean, they're my favorite film company right now. Mm-hmm. But nothing got nominated from that movie, right? No, not that I know of. <clears throat> yeah, because he didn't get nominated for actor. No. It didn't get nominated. Although actors stack this year. I mean, actors a really strong category. Yeah, the only one I don't have any real the knowledge of is that Banderas yeah. role. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, the only thing that I don't particularly care for... And I've seen The Irishman. It's the only one I don't really care for. I even like want to see that Amy Pascal um, Little Women adaptation because I like that. I like that movie, or I like the Little Women story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little disappointed I didn't get a chance to see Bombshell, although it felt like really, I don't know. It's a little too um, topical for me. Like I'm not a huge fan of like mm-hmm. super topical, like like the Richard Jewell. Like I didn't. Really sure. have any? I kind of want to see Richard Jewell just because I don't know. I just have this weird like hatred of like modern day Eastwood, and it makes me like want to see everything he does. Just see, like, I want to see Jewell because I actually think it could be Eastwood's best movie in a long time. Maybe the Mule was really bad. I watched the Mule a couple yeah. months ago. I haven't seen that. It's. I mean, it's like. I don't know. It's 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 hard to explain like his yeah. mindset, like where he's coming from, from somebody who's like super wealthy. I don't know. Yeah, I was up late the night that that bombing happened because I would be up on my computer like late at night in the '90s, and it was the first time like 24-hour news was really starting. And um, so I was awake, and I remember somebody online had said, "Oh, there's been a bombing at the Olympics," and I turned on the news and. Um, I've always been captivated by, like, that whole thing, like, just because of everybody being certain it was him, and then slowly over months finding out that he had nothing to do with it, but the guy's name was tarnished. Right. So I've always had that as, like, one of those, like, my primary example in my head of when you hear somebody's guilty of something, and then finding out, like, retractions appear on page 10 as opposed to the front page. That's always been in like the back of my mind as the case, so I'm I'm interested to see how that's handled. Plus, it has some really good, you know, looks like it has good performances in it. Oh yeah, it's um, it's also interesting that like, uh, Parasite's nominated like as much as it is, especially because it's nominated for best foreign language film and best picture, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think it has any chance of winning best picture, but it, you know, could win best it'll, foreign language. It'll film. win best foreign film and lose best picture. Yeah. Um. And the Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is nominated so much. And yeah. I would like to see that, like, win several awards. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like it. Like, I, I like the Oscars when stuff that I care about wins. And I don't <laughs> right, particularly yeah. care for the Oscars when stuff that I don't have any concern for is nominated and wins. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, when you have a rooting call is when you really like a movie that's nominated. Um, yeah, it's it's much more fun. But it's still just bullshit politics. To a large degree, I think. Yeah. The only award that I really ever still care about is the is the Palm Door. Is like the thing that I feel is like a true recognition of like a great film. Yeah. Even though they get it wrong sometimes too. But for the most part, if you go back and look at the winners. And we did that podcast forever ago. Yeah. About the best best winners of the Palm Door. Yeah. Um 
you know, I think that, like, you can see, like, some actual, like, real recognition for greatness in that award. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, Best Picture, and at some point, we, we've talked about for a long time, like, basically rewriting history mm-hmm. with, like, Oscar nominations for certain years. Yeah. Um, and I would like to do that at some point. Like, I just think that it's, I think they're tone deaf a lot of times, and I think that they're behind, like the cutting edge in a lot of ways, like stuff that really deserves nominations gets overlooked for, I don't know, some overwrought, like, I don't know, piece by some established director. Sure. Sure. Okay. So moving away from the male centric Oscars and to tonight's episode, which is episode 60. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. Um, This is the first episode where we've put a firm focus on, uh, Women, uh, where we have the it's the top five compelling female leads. Uh, this is after numerous people have um, mentioned in some way to us. Usually, like I know Aiden's mentioned it a few times to us about how we haven't had any female subject matter or anything like that. So um, we've heard that and wanted to like you know compensate for it some and. Uh, I'm interested by this category because uh, it's went through a couple iterations, I think, in terms of like what to call it, like the the episode itself. Right. Even with the the title here, the idea of uh, <laughs> com- compelling female leads, how did you possibly narrow this down? I don't know. It's just basically like the first five that came to mind. <laughs> you just. It's like just the one after another. What They're you thought just, of? So they, I, uh, they stand out in your mind, though. Look, I, I, I love I'm... I love all five of these movies for yeah, different reasons. Yeah. Um, it's in, okay. So, and we can we'll we'll talk about this more when we get into the individuals. Like mm-hmm. a couple of these movies are by some of my favorite directors ever, mm-hmm. but I don't consider them to be among these directors' like greatest movies. Mm-hmm. I just think there's something about the female lead in the movie that's makes the movie more interesting than it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, In particular, the number four movie is one of my least favorite films by the director, Mm. but one of my favorite performances Mm -hmm. like by a by a female lead and a director that is not afraid to like have female leads in his movies. And honestly, like most of his movies are at least revolve around, if a woman's not the main character, she's a co-main character mm-hmm. um, with a male protagonist. Um, I don't know. I, I So like, this kind of varies between... Uh, I, I'm just trying to get some kind of groundwork for this. So it's like it varies between... It, it goes between female performance, like actress perfor- performance, and then character work. Yeah, there's something about them where I feel like in each of the movies where it's... Uh, it's a break from like the traditional view of like how a woman should be portrayed in a movie Mm -hmm. where it's not a damsel in distress or someone that needs a man to save her or someone who needs like, I don't know. It's just, there's, there's something like interesting about each of them. And there's other movies that we've talked about in the past that could have made this list. Um, most recently, I think like maybe the marriage of Maria Braun, um, Mm -hmm. could have been on this list easily. Um, and other stuff too that like I love that I sort of thought about, but 
and really like now that I think about it, like I probably should have put Persona on the list. Um, would have been like a really good inclusion. Um, Bergman like really loves like female leads too. You know, mm-hmm. Autumn Sonata is another one that like easily could have made the list, and that could have been for um, uh, Ingrid Bergman and uh, who else is in that movie? Um, I can't remember her name. Uh, but yeah, I just like I I'm always I'm always interested when a movie kind of like allows a character or an actor to shine like beyond like the confines of the movie. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. No, no, I understand. Um, and I think that all of these movies have, you know, female characters that are really, you know, they're flawed, like aside from one of them, maybe, um, which is like sort of like the outlier of this, these five movies. Um, but they're flawed characters. They're human characters. They're people who have, wants and needs and like go through changes in their their perception of like you know themselves and their relationships and I, I think all of that stuff is like incredibly compelling and especially like you know the there's just something that really I don't know like I just I, yeah. I, I love movies that are about small subjects but feel like greater than the sum of their parts i guess no that's that's good i mean it gives me a couple of things to ask you about these movies if i'm trying to get to the core of like what you find so fascinating if because one thing so when i was i've been thinking about this for like the past week is like two of the movies will be really easy to talk about as movies because there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. three of the movies like i've been thinking like what what do i say like you asked me to describe them and it's like okay well I can give you maybe like a five sentence description, but it's going to sound like dull, uh-huh. but it's more than just like, again, like it's not about the movie. It's about the performance in the movie. Right. And that's one thing like now that we've like really like grown, I mean, 60 is a lot that I'd like to start doing when we have the chance is like looking at smaller aspects of movies than that mm-hmm. and talking about how maybe a movie that's like flawed in a lot of ways, but has like this one aspect that just elevates that above you know the rest of the movie in general sure and no because i think you do get an interesting stuff if you start breaking it down by the filmmaking process just as much as yeah. you do the genre or year or decade or whatever um okay so let's go ahead and jump into number five number five on your list is Cleo from 5 to 7 is a 1961 French film directed by Agnes Varda and starring Corinne Marchand. It has a 96% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 89% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie, what you like about it so much, and particularly focusing on the female lead. Uh, So Cleo is a singer in Paris, early 60s. Um, Movie opens with her at a tarot reading where the older woman who's doing her tarot card reading kind of like sort of accurately guesses some aspects of her life or at least like in inca- like says things that she feels encapsulates aspects of her life but ends with um the woman basically being unwilling to read her palm after looking at it because she says she doesn't do that cleo who's recently found that she may be terminally ill with cancer takes that as a sign that she's definitely going to die. Um, and then goes through 
you know, the afternoon after the tarot card reading, sort of moving from one part of her life to another and becoming like kind of despondent and sort of like questioning how people esteem her and how she esteems herself and sort of like becoming focused on this idea that she's going to die or she, that, that the doc, she's supposed to meet her doctor at um seven thirty to get the, um, whatever the final diagnosis mm. of her disease. And she's sort of like building towards that idea that it's going to be, you know, if she finds out that she's going to get cancer, she's going to, or she's going to die from cancer. She's going to kill herself. And that there's a lot of where she like openly states that the thing that matters in the most in life is that she's beautiful. Um, and that kind of like people see her that way in some ways, or that she thinks that they see her that way. Um, and ends with her having a really long conversation with a soldier who's returned from the Algerian front, um, where he's talking about his experiences in his life and they're sort of relating to each other. And then she finds out it's almost like offhand that like, Oh, by the way, like, you know, all you have to do is go through like some minor treatment and you'll be fine. There's nothing really wrong with you. Um, and it sort of like opens her back up to the idea that like the world can be like beautiful and like she's sort of with the soldier and you kind of get the impression that she's now in love with this guy. And that even though she has like a lover or whatever, who's, just kind of an asshole um, mm-hmm. that she's like sort of like moved past maybe even her own like self-obsession and is able to now be, um, I don't know, like a more complete or a more like human mm-hmm. person. Yeah. Um, I think it's a fantastic performance. Uh, I think that Varda does an amazing job with, especially with the use of mirrors in the movie. Cause there's a lot of mirror shots because Cleo is, Prior to the diagnosis, you get the impression she's very self-obsessed, very... Absolutely. Not even the impression, because, like, she says a lot of things that show that she's self-obsessed with her beauty, with her talent. Well, there's a scene where she plays one of her songs in a cafe. Right. Waiting for people to... Like, recognize the music and then no one cares. And and then no one cares and she, yeah. Because that's that's all, like, to her, that's what she is. You know, she's a voice and she's a face or a body or whatever. And... It's really like, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a movie in two parts. And like the second part just happens to be the very end of it because a lot of it is Cleo's like almost like existential crisis of, am I anything more than like what other people perceive me to be? And do people perceive me to be anything other than something they can use for their own ends? Mm-hmm. Like even when the, um, Bob, the pianist and, um, what is it? Marcel, I guess are in her apartment with her later and they're practicing. Like she's still, the impression is that, well, this is the music industry is just going to use me until they don't need me anymore. Um, and her friend is just using her kind of, and her boyfriend is just using her and like is only willing, like is really dismissive of the fact that she thinks she's sick. And he's like, mm-hmm. well, I have time for is what I was like, I have time for a kiss, but we'll mm-hmm. go away somewhere later in the future. And, it's all these things that are kind of like feeding into this idea that in reality, if she doesn't have beauty, she doesn't have anything. Mm -hmm. And then it's this, you know, there's little bits like they listen to the radio at one point and they're talking about like the, the Algerian war. Um, and it's this, you know, the soldier who's actually lived like this life where 
he's seen that there's something, you know, it's not just whatever, like materialistic or like ephemeral, like he's actually seen life and it's their conversation that sort of like, you know, his existential crisis almost at like having to go back to war. Sure. That sort of like draws her out and lets her realize that there's more. Um, and I think it's a really brilliant performance. Um, and I think that Varda does a good job capturing all that. Mm -hmm. Um, again, like the way that she films things that show that imply Cleo's like self-obsession and also sort of show like the people don't really like the people that Cleo values in her life don't really take her seriously. Like, right. You know, when, when, man, I think it's Marcel. I know it's Bob. Bob is the piano player. When they come up to do the practice, you know, their, their thing is like, oh, well, a woman just loves to laugh. We'll just make a joke of it. And then that'll be fine. And they get like, what, like the colander and they're like getting all the props mm -hmm. and stuff so they mm -hmm. can kind of make, make light of the situation. Um, not my favorite Agnes Varda movie, but maybe like my favorite performance in an Agnes Varda movie. Um, like I like, like La Boheme and there's a couple others that are like later in her career that I think are, when, when she starts directing color, I think she's a much, much more talented director. Mm. Um, she's definitely someone that benefits from filming in color. Um, but still like there's some great shots in this movie. Yeah. Um, really good symbolism, like in the broken mirror and the the black hat and you know even like the tarot cards and stuff like the look of all those things and then just like the simplicity and the beauty of them in the park towards the end that kind of like is her like almost like awakening away from like this shallow mm -hmm. life when she has this new lease that even if it's just for that moment like you feel that she has the potential to grow you mentioned when you were talking about these in toto that there's some kind of like break from tradition, non-traditional element to a lot of these movies. What do you see as that kind of break from tradition about this character that stands out to you so much? Because I think that it's, I think it's Cleo recognizing these things in herself and it's Cleo that saves herself. Like, even though mm -hmm. it's the conversation with, you know, um, and, Antoine or whatever. Is yeah, it, I can't but remember but that, is, that, that's only because it's a totally different situation, but it's, he's also potentially facing death and right. that, and, and he's actually listening to her because he can empathize in right. that way. And not, not trying to minimize right. or he's right. not like pushing yeah. aside. <clears throat> um, you look at stuff from like the, the forties and fifties. And so this is early sixties. This is kind of like the be precursor maybe of like the new wave, like the beginning of that whole like feel of, the existentialism of, like, French literature in, like, the 40s and 50s, like, Sartre and um, uh, Camus, like, moving into, like, the film of the 60s and, like, into the 70s, you know, with, like, Godard and whatnot. Um, there's the idea that, like, I mean, women for a long time, <clears throat> even when they have starring roles, a lot of times they're still the damsel in distress. They still need to be saved by a man. And I think that if this was a traditional Hollywood movie, it would be the film, the directorial emphasis would be on him saving her mm -hmm. and him sweeping her off her feet. And it would be like this grand romantic thing. Sure. And even though I think there's a lot of romance to it, I don't think it's necessarily, 
It's just two people talking to each other and a person who's a fully formed character from a viewer standpoint at that point in the movie taking all the things that you've seen that she thinks about herself and like coming to a different conclusion. And it's just, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I was pretty, pretty impressed with it the first time I saw it. I really liked this movie and this is maybe like the third time I've watched it. Um, that it didn't like become pandering towards like her being like rescued by somebody and it allowed her to be her own character. And I don't know. I always find that to be, you know, pretty intriguing when like a movie allows that to happen because it certainly, certainly doesn't fall into the trap of playing to like the traditional audience or like the male dominated, like theater going audience that you're not trying to like draw the male interest in by saying like, Oh, well the, the woman needs to be saved. Like, if anything, it's the men in her life that you see are sort of, like, dragging her down, like, mm-hmm. away from, like, this existential awakening of, like, that her life can matter beyond, like, her beauty or her singing. And there's other things in life that she can, you know, like, find joy or whatever. And Sure. I mean, I think the hope by the end of it isn't just come from the fact that she's not sick, but... Now there's the hope now for some sort of firm independence right, on her part that she's seen through this, she's seen through the fraud of her boyfriend, like her lover or whatever, right. that guy, like, um, and she pretty much says that to her assistant or whatever, the, the older woman that's in the room with her, like that, um, she doesn't really need him or right. any man, maybe. And yes. then she sees through the fraud of, like, the people that are in the music industry with her. She sees that people, like, for what she thinks of herself and why she should be noticed, her looks, her talent, that nobody really cares about those things when push comes to shove. Like, right. at the end of the day, like, well, it's she, interesting she could be dead and they wouldn't care. There's a point when they're having, I think... I can't remember when this scene happens. It's 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 one time where they're listening to the radio and they're talk the radio is talking about like the war in Algeria. And it also mentions about um Edith Edith Piaf mm-hmm. like being like really ill. Yeah. And I think that's also like an interesting, you know, sort of like what you just said because here's this woman that was considered like whatever like the Rose of Paris at one point in her career and is now like just a side note on the radio. And that, you know, she can't just, like, live to be like that. Like, there's got to be something more. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. No, it's the first time I saw it. Um, I'm certainly one of my weak areas is probably French film, which you know fairly fairly well. I mean, you know, you've seen a lot of different stuff, yeah. like, out of France. and But, no, I thought this was good. I It took me a while to get into it. Like, it took me probably 20, 25 minutes till I started seeing that how it was organized in right. terms of like the different vignettes and like how it was a kind of exposed. And then once I kind of got it, it was like, okay, like, let me see how this plays out. And it paid off. Like I thought the last 20, 25 minute sequence or whatever in the park was, um, was really good. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's did a lot too, for the idea of illness. I thought too, beyond just the female character, right? Because she is self-obsessed, but given the situation, if anybody has a has a time where they could be self-obsessed, it's that time of the idea that you could be 
terminally ill or something sure. along those lines. Like if, if people are given a time where they're allowed to be self-obsessed, that's one of those times. And um, despite that, she still doesn't. Nobody cares, and right. like they're 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 all just you know. Well, they're like, everyone's self obsessed in a lot of ways, right? They're right, yeah. Except for yeah. the one guy who's got the most to lose in life, and sure. he's the one that kind of helps her, sure, helps open her eyes, and she mm-hmm. does that on her own. I think a lot about like the questions she asks and the way that she yeah. is starting to like think. Um, yeah. It's it's always hard to recommend like a good movie to get into in terms of like really like a broad period of French cinema because they're all very similar. Like this feels like a French movie when you watch it. And it's the way that it's the way the directors film like Paris in, in specific, but just France in general. And just the way that like the idea that you can just let like a scene go into another scene without like having like a real firm driving narrative where it's more just like, well, this is happening and now this is happening and, um, and the next movie we talk about, like, that happens a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I know it's just, um, Varda's, Varda's really good. Um, I wouldn't call her underrated, but I think she's probably lesser known than she deserves to be because she's made some really great movies. And I think Cleo from five to seven is a good starting point for people that want to get into, like, just are interested in seeing her films. And a lot of her films are up on the Criterion channel, correct? Yeah, Criterion actually about... 15 years ago put out a fantastic box set that was um uh this uh la i can never pronounce french um it, like five of her movies that mm-hmm. were all really good la boheme la point couture um some other stuff that are really mm-hmm. really worth seeing but yeah she's a really good director and yet yeah, i think seven or eight of her movies on the criterion channel right now yeah so bosley crother uh of the New York Times actually seems to think that Varda's direction takes away a little bit from the character development in this. He says that her, that Varda is so absorbed with her own camera stunts as she is in the scene in the hat shop or when she is screening the comedy short that the essential concentration on the heroine is neglected and the interest lost. The character becomes incidental to the techniques by which it is being explained. Uh, he says the actress who plays the central roles is a large, ponderous blonde with an with an enameled and generally inexpressive face. All she conveys is the dullness of a mechanically motivated girl, which of course causes one to be so whatish about the Im- intimated threat of her doom. Um, is there anything that Varda does that you see that distracts? No. I mean, I think that the... No. I thought the comedy short stuff was the least interesting part of the movie. If I had to pinpoint something sure. that I thought was the part that I was like, okay, come on. What but I didn't see anything other than that scene that I thought like was just drug too long. If I'm being hypercritical. And I really like this movie. I don't um I don't know. I don't really have any like negative feelings towards the direction. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes a director can, like, to his point, almost, like, do too much. And I'm trying to think of a good example of that, where, like, the direction kind of pulls you out. I think every once in a while, Tarantino can pull you out of a scene because he overdirects it. Like, his stunts, or whatever he calls it, are there. 
<clears throat> and it's just too much. I think Spike Lee can do it. You're right. Spike Lee's another good example of somebody that... Um, hey, uh, here's a director that's not quite as, like, I don't know, whatever, like, artistic. But, like, Brian De Palma mm. is somebody who can direct something where he's just trying to do too much. And, like, instead of just letting the story develop, he's, like... Has... 15 cuts of the different Dutch angles. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. And I don't I don't think Varda does that necessarily. No, I think yeah. it's a very I think it's I mean it's like what her like second or third movie. I mean I think it's sure. a very um very mature, very controlled yeah. direction. And I think she is experimenting a little bit, so it's probably new to someone like Bosley Crother. <laughs> um just such a funny name. I mean, you spend what the first 10 minutes of the movie without seeing like anyone's face, right? How long does it go on where they're just showing the flipping of the tarot cards? I mean, that takes five minutes. Is the tarot cards? I but think. That's, but I still, mean, it's 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 it's. I was getting ready to use a word that's not appropriate in this context, but um, it's very gutsy, yeah. like to start a movie like that. Yeah, it's kind of daring, like yeah. to not even have like that. Sure, establish and it yeah. establishes so much about the character without ever showing you the character. Right. Like, that's. I mean, I, I agree. That's the kind of thing that shows. I don't know, like innovation as a director but it's not like a stunt agreed it's just kind of brilliant yeah so yeah i don't know i i i, I agree i i was I, I was seriously watching the beginning of that movie as the credits like because credits roll over right uh-huh. yeah and like thinking like really they're going to do the this over the entire credits like and it's like okay like yeah i thought it was um yeah, pretty unique uh, for the time. So. But it's definitely a movie that's worth seeing, and yeah. Varda is a director that's worth. I mean, I think she directed like maybe fifteen to twenty movies, and yeah. I've seen like five, so I can't mm-hmm. even tell you her whole filmography. But you know, like La La Bonheur, La Court Point, this, um, some other ones like later in her career that are just like really worth watching. Okay, so number four on your list is also a French film by Jean Luc Godard in same year, nineteen sixty one. Uh, titled A Woman is a Woman, starring Anna Karina, Jean-Paul Belmondo, and Jean-Claude Briali. Uh, it is 84% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 86% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about her performance so much? Um, there's really not much to say about the movie. Uh, Corinna plays, I guess you call her a stripper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, an exotic dancer. Um, who's with a man, uh, Emil, right? Is that his name? Uh, his name is Emil, yes. Um, his friend's name is Alfred. Uh, Alfred is played by Belmondo, who was the lead in Godard's first movie, Breathless, mm-hmm. um, who's now here as, like, a supporting character. Uh, she wants to have a baby. Emil doesn't want to have a baby. Um, she tries to convince him several times to have a child with her, and he won't do it. Um, Belmondo is Emil's like best friend who basically is casually just like, Hey, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll have a kid with you <clears throat> to the point where she eventually sleeps with him. Um, Belmondo, uh, but then goes back to a meal and they sleep together. And I guess it's implied that they'll <clears throat> stay together. Um, Godard called it like his ode to the Hollywood musical, which I don't understand. Um, cause it's not a musical at right, all at all. Um, it's almost like an anti-musical in a lot of ways. Right. Um, well, cause it's so, yeah, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, cause he has, mu- there's music in it. Not like 
it's not like people singing like in a musical, but it's like there's there's music in the background that he per- purposely distorts or fucks up by the way he cuts. Right, or he'll just yeah he'll stop a song yeah like mid mid verse. Well, there's, there's that like... great scene of the song playing in the background when he's showing her the photographs, trying to like Alfred's being a scumbag and trying to convince her that Emil's cheating on her. Right. Oh, um, with yeah. Well, that that's the best scene in the movie with yeah. the photograph. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. That's yeah. That's so. Talk about Godard for a little bit, and then I want to talk about Anna Karina. Right. And this is not. This is not Anna Karina's best performance by like far, but and anyway, I'll get to like why I, like yeah. I wanted to put this on the list. I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, Breathless is maybe the most amazing directorial debut ever. Uh, it's just it's it's a perfect film it's like a masterpiece of modern cinema it's a masterpiece of french like new wave cinema it's got incredible performances it's got i don't know it's just it's it's by far like one of my favorite movies of all time this is godard's like technically second like um released movie right and this movie feels fractured and immature and sort of like he is still trying to figure out how he can do things that are interesting to him while still telling a good story. Mm-hmm. Like, which is amazing that he was able to do that in his first film. He actually filmed La Petite Soldat in between Breathless and this, but it wasn't released until I think like his it's like his fourth release or third release movie um and he doesn't have it here like here it's like doesn't have the maturity that he would show will show like much later um like my life to live and um pierre lefou and there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes after this that are far better films from you know a filmmaking standpoint than this one um i really like the fact that he takes Belmondo who's kind of a scumbag and breathless too and makes him the supporting character in this movie instead of because he was like I'm pretty sure like a pretty big pretty big star after breathless um and again that scene where he's showing her the photograph and it's like the cuts from like her face to the photograph and like the way the the way that Godard cuts and edits that scene is is pretty brilliant but the rest of the movie, I mean, there's the scene where they're showing each other the titles of the books. That's a really well done scene. Um, that That's the best sequence in the movie. There are shots in this movie because he's so good that are just amazing. Like, breathtaking at times. If you just pause the screen. Right. Like, amazing shots. Like, but that sequence is the best sequence. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm talking about just, like, the direction in general where mm-hmm. you can see that, like, he still is unsure. Yeah. Of how to put a movie together. He's experimenting completely here. And again, it's not even like Corinna's best performance. Yeah. But. Okay. There's something about like the discovery of her as an actress. And I think so he, he, her and him, the two of them fell in love and I think are married at this point when this movie is filmed. Or if they're not, they're in a, like a committed relationship. They might not be married yet. And just like the small things that she does 
with her face, with her movement, with the way that she like turns a phrase. It's one of the more like amazing revelations of a person like coming into their own as like a star, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's less about like the character of Angela, who's not like a very well-rounded or interesting character, but it's Corinna, like what she infuses into that character. I think that's like always amazing to me. Mm -hmm. Like I love her in this movie. Mm -hmm. And again, there's small things that I like about this movie. Um, Little things he does, like having the same couple, like whatever, in whatever that little alcove yeah, or whatever, little, yeah. that are just kind of silly. Um, and he moves away from that. Sure, but it's, I, I just, it's just, it's just her, really. And yeah. there's other film actresses that I think are just as revelatory, like in their, um, I guess this is her debut too. Like, when you see him for the first time, but there's just something about, like, her as an actress where even though the subject matter in the film isn't elevated to a level of greatness, she elevates her own performance to that level of greatness. And, like, I just love watching her move and talk and exist. And Yeah, she's exudes charm. She's beautiful. And she makes you interested in like a character who I don't think is necessarily all that likable. No, she, so if you wanted to talk about like, she's petulant and she's, um, she's manipulative. She's petty. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Which I mean, the film all admits she's like jealous. A, she admits in the she film, has huge like, amounts of sure, jealousy inside sure, her, even sure. though she's willing to like sleep with another man to get what she wants. Yeah. She's very jealous mm-hmm. of, um Bellamy or whatever his name is yeah. um cheating on her the best the best Corinna performance in a Godard film is probably in uh, Band of Outsiders mm-hmm. um which is what I mean I think that's Tarantino's favorite Godard movie is what it he is. named his production company sure. after yep amazing performance by her in that but there's just something about this person finding I don't know like the small ways to show humanity and like just like an honest portrayal of a person. I don't know. I just like, I, I've always loved her performance in this movie. And, and and I, I would also say, I think that it's, that's helped along a little bit that you can tell, I don't know if they were together or not doing this. You can tell the director is in love with her. Like just by the way he films her and finds those little moments and the way I don't. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like there's there's a lovingness to the way he films her in this. Like everything on the camera is yeah. is, is puts her in her best light always. Um, I mean, he he gets her like that in um, definitely Band of Outsiders and Alphaville mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Like when he films her in Alphaville, Alphaville is probably his most striking movie. I would say like. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, like, ever undercut Breathless because Breathless is so amazing. But mm-hmm. um, Alphaville is, like, like, Godard's, like, noir or whatever. Um, and the way he films her in that, it's, it's like, replicated in um, that Cranberries video, the sure. Linger yep. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. they do a good job of kind of, like, imitating that style. But, yeah, yeah you can definitely tell that, like, 
through his eyes, like the camera loves like her face and her movements. Mm-hmm. And she's just, it's not like watching like, um, Brigitte Bardot right. in a movie where she's this like larger than life, like sexual object kind of in the way the director's film or like Anna Karina just kind of like lives on, on the screen and feels like a person that you might know in real life and talk to. And I don't know, like I just, so maybe there's not anything compelling about this character and there really isn't in the grand scheme of things, but it still is like, yeah, it's one of my favorite performances ever. And I really, or one of my favorite performances of her. And especially considering that it's like so young in her career to be able to be that whatever captivating on film is just, yeah. I don't know. And she had a really long career and she's been in some, some amazing movies. Very talented actress, especially considering that she had like no real like training or anything. I mean, she was a model, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that, I think that's how Godard saw her. Like Godard, Godard tried to get her to be in Breathless, I think. And she turned him down because he wanted her to be, nude in the movie and then like he came back to her and convinced her to do um la petite sold up yeah i'm pretty sure that's where if they didn't get married there that's where like they start their relationship because they're together until the mid 60s and then they divorce yeah it's like like four years or something i think <clears throat> i read um but yeah like you it's it's just a young like a young director one of my favorite directors of all time and a young actress one of my favorite actresses of all time, like them coming together in this, like, I don't know. There's just something amazing about watching it, like, unfold. Yeah, and she's the best part of this entire thing. Um, first time I've seen this, uh, Ebert gave it two out of four stars, called it slight and sometimes wearisome. Says the movie is bright and lively, but too precious, and Godard would soon make better ones. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not that's not wrong. I think that's exactly right. Like, I, I think that's the thing that bothered me the most watching this movie is, and this is again coming from someone who likes things like the Gilmore Girls. I thought it was way too precious, like watching it, and that goes to the couple in the alcove, like, and maybe I've just seen people do that stuff too much now later in my life. And it was something that was innovative and interesting at the time. I don't sure. know, but it's still just all. I don't. I don't know how that like it the, was. the kind of like self self referential like um like in jokes of like breathless being on the television, right? Or the Burt Lancaster look at the screen breaking. He's the talking to wall. like Jules Jules Dasan, right? Yeah. About filming like Jules and Jim. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like okay, right? Like. So the, again, the, the breaking up the music in those scenes, like it's just like okay. Like, this is a guy, one of my five like favorite directors of all time, mm-hmm. and maybe like top three, along with like Kurosawa and Bergman. Mm-hmm. I would say like Godard is right there. If this is like one of the worst movies that he makes, and it's still like is interesting, yes, enough, agreed, and agreed. it's beautiful yeah. at times, yeah. and there's some I don't amazing. Disagree with that amazing like just Godard is like next to Bergman maybe the best director at capturing the dynamic between two people in a conversation yeah and making a conversation feel important where it's only where nothing action-wise is happening in the scene aside from two people talking yeah and Godard like can fill the entire screen with it and make it feel like 
like it matters and sure that's a that's a good way of saying it i just think that like again like corinne is in like four of his best movies you know mm-hmm. she's in like my life to live and lepidy soldat and alphaville and <clears throat> it's just you can feel like their his love for her and mm-hmm. <clears throat> just her importance on the screen and i don't know okay um one of these things is not like the others um Number three on your list is Aliens, the James Cameron film from 1986, starring Sigourney Weaver, Carrie Henn, Michael Bean, Paul Reiser, and Bill Paxton. I think is this the no, this is the first time Paul Reiser makes discussion on our podcast. Did we talk about? Did anybody choose Beverly Hills Cops Cop for anything? We talked about Beverly Hills Cop, but we but it wasn't selected as one of the as the Eddie Murphy movie, right? It no, was, because I did Golden Child and Marv did um. Coming to America. Coming to America. Right. So this is technically, I think, Paul Reiser's first appearance on anything. Um, <clears throat> is that true? He had to have been in something. <laughs> I can't remember Paul Reiser making I'm going to look here. up Paul Reiser's filmography while you're okay. asking me your intro questions. Okay. So it has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. It has a 94% from audiences. I don't know how much needs to be said about Aliens as you're looking at Paul Reiser. Other than that, this is a sequel to Alien. You can go back and listen to our episode, Best in 1979, where we talk about Alien, the first movie. Uh, We also talk about it in the best, maybe episode number, like, five or something like that. Best Alien movies. Best Alien movies. Um, It was number one. Right. And we talked about it there as well. This picks up um, how long after the fact? Um, Is it like 20? No, it's way in the future. Is it like 60 years or something like that? After Alien? Yeah. It's a while, right? I mean, it's enough that the Wayland Corporation has like, is actively trying to cultivate aliens at this point. Or the xenomorphs. Sure. So I'm saying, yeah, I can't remember how long. Yeah, I don't remember how long it is. Because I've watched... Uh, my terrible admission is that I not only watched Aliens because Alien, Aliens, Alien Three, and Alien Resurrection are all free on HBO right now. So I watched all of them um, to uh, to be a completionist. Um, it was a mistake, I admit it. But now I'm like fucked up on the timeline of everything because I can't remember how the the jumps in yeah. number of years between each movie. So it picks up where she's come out of cryo freeze. Everybody is dead besides her. Um, and you want to pick it up from there, Frank? So it's basically they're sending Ripley in a platoon of um, Marines um, to this outworld. Um, why are words failing me? Colony uh, that the xenomorphs have whatever like infested um i guess i don't know. i mean it's aliens like everyone's seen aliens i don't need to talk about aliens right there's a little girl she gets protected newt that ripley rescues and yeah, protects her and, and wears an exoskeleton like yeah, suit and there's the giant the giant queen alien is in like the basement and yeah Ripley. Oh, Lance Hendricks is in it. I forgot to mention Lance Hendrickson yeah. as probably, Bishop. yeah, like Bishop the uh, android. 
and Bill Paxton in the Game Over Man. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this movie yeah. that's pretty iconic from the perspective of like I think our childhood in, in film. Sure. So it most just, imp- most important question before we continue with Aliens was Paul Reiser on. Is an, I could not find he, anything. He that yeah, we would he's not. That. It would only about. be Beverly Hills Cop. There's nothing. I'm telling you. I mean, yeah. You know, Man About You is not making any list. Except for, like... Well, no, Whiplash. There's a chance. Whip, we, you know what? We've talked about Life After Beth. He's in Life After Beth. We didn't talk about Life After Beth. We did when we were looking through the um, Netflix and Prime. Get it? That's cheap. That's cheap. You know what? It's, not, it's, still, it's still there. Not not top five. Like or He's in The man. Aristocrats. We could talk about that someday. I don't know. The Aristocats? That. No, The Aristocrats. Oh, okay. The documentary where the documentary. people just tell the Aristocrats joke You're over and over. putting that on a list. Uh, have we talked about crazy people? I feel like that came up somewhere. It did, but I it still didn't make a list. Diner might eventually be on the list. There's a chance. The, the Gutenberg movie? Yeah, Diner. Yeah, from what's his name? Um, yeah. What's yeah? I whatever. Can't remember his name now? Okay. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Best movies that take place in Maryland. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so you put this. You put this movie on this. Like, list because one i'm going to just take a stab i don't even know if we've talked about this one you didn't want to talk about alien again right that's true two, i also think that she's a more compelling okay yep right yeah two there's growth and there's also now a protector aspect that wasn't necessarily there in the first film that kind of adds to the mystique of her as like strong woman she's forced to be the protagonist and alien by circumstance mm-hmm. she's definitely the strongest character in this movie sure and not by circumstance mm-hmm. which is what i think is more especially from like a mainstream action sci-fi slash horror movie in the um what year is this 88 89 86 um really that young that early yeah Jesus, this movie feels like it's like much, it still feels much more relevant, I think, than being whatever. Sure. That old. Um, It looks really good, too. It's incredibly ballsy to have in this era of Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Chuck Norris and whatever, like these really like muscular, athletic action male leads to have a woman be your obvious protagonist in a movie like this. I mean, it's James, James Cameron, like deserves a lot of credit for, you know, for doing that. I Mm -hmm. think even though it is just really a continuation story wise, you didn't have to have that character in it. You could have just had that character be a memory or like whatever. Sure. And had some man like Schwarzenegger could have been whatever. And it would have been A, a lesser movie, I think, and no offense to Arnold Schwarzenegger because I love Schwarzenegger from this time period, but just I, I think it means so much more that it's her. Really, so the reason this movie is on the list is because the original list was best female protagonists, mm-hmm. and it was just very general. Right. And when I think of female protagonists, this is honestly the first movie that I think of because I feel like it's. The most obvious time where a woman is, a, the woman character is carrying the movie and is ultimately. Well, it's the first one I would think of too. And I think it's because it was the effect it would have had on us when we were very young. 
because you you weren't watching Godard movies when you were probably right. eight. You know, yeah. I mean, where here, um, you know, you would have seen this at a very young age and been had it impressed upon you. Yeah, and it really like it influenced a lot. I mean, I spent of like all the quote unquote like movie monsters, the Xenomorph is maybe my favorite and easily like one of my favorites. I mean, I love the design of it. <clears throat> I like the fact that it actually can feel scary because it is so, you know, like pardon the pun, but it is so alien. Like it doesn't feel like it's so disconnected from anything in our reality, but still feels kind of familiar because it's kind of like a bug or something where like, there's that primal fear you have of like the spider, like scurrying across you or whatever. And like, there's this fast moving, chitinous monster so the alien franchise like really struck a chord with me at a young age and just like ripley i mean she kind of reminded me of my aunt you know she felt like like looks wise sigourney weaver kind of looks like somebody that you might know Mm -hmm. especially from like that time period like the short hair and just like the way she carries herself like she feels like someone you might know but it's just so larger than life in the way that she Number one, she refuses to crack under pressure like everyone else around her, like these trained, you know, like badass Marines, like fall one by one because they're too haughty or they like crumble or there's all these things that cause them to like die. And she's able to maintain not only herself, but protect like another human being. I also think it's an interesting from like a compelling female lead when you look at Newt as being like a secondary character in that Newt is just as resilient and strong for being like a child mm-hmm. in like the same setting that there's this like, what is she like eight or nine year old kid? Right. that's been able to stay alive and avoid the aliens for however long. I can't remember what the time frame is that they give in the movie. Um, but yeah, just like for being like a major blockbuster motion picture. I mean, you look at, like the modern landscape of movies where we're much more much more open to female leads and people of color as leads and whatever like there's a whole lot broader scope of what a lead actor can be and it took until like what like the 18th marvel film to have a actress in a lead role sure and it was i mean that movie's not even that good but still like you know it took that long to get like a woman and there's plenty of female superheroes in the Marvel Universe that you could have had star in a movie and it took forever. And James Cameron in 1986 is saying, like, no, this is the main character of this movie and is going to be the biggest badass in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Sigourney Weaver is such a good actress that, like, Ripley is a fully formed and realized character that you care about and that you believe sure. could do these things. Yeah. So, And well, an interesting juxtaposition that the biggest badass in the Alien like whatever like their genus is the queen it's the queen like right. she's this and i know that that's kind of like pulling from like the whole idea of like the insect mm-hmm. um connection that they have i guess that um what's his name uh geiger was sort of pulling from but um yeah it just i don't know it's 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 one of the best action sci-fi movies ever um it strays the i, I always like alien more because i feel like alien is more of like a straight like horror movie and i always will like gravitate towards like the horror elements of alien 
just because like even like in outer space it feels like a gothic it almost like the the nostromo feels like a gothic haunted house that like these things are just in sure whereas this is almost post-apocalyptic in the way that it feels but it's just a bigger movie yeah no my god yeah like 10 times the the size and the scope even though when you think about it, it really doesn't take place in that much more of a space, really. Oh, it's, it's just not enclosed inside the ship the entire time. Right, because they are outside, right. and, like, yeah. on the atmosphere of the planet, mm-hmm. and then inside the um, the right. farm, whatever it is, the, the colony. Yeah. But yeah, just um, really great performance. I, I, I've always, I, I've always, like, had a soft spot for Sigourney Weaver, um, and I think that she's... I mean, obviously, again, like, she's not an underrated actress, but I don't know that she gets the due that she deserves for being as great of an actress as she is, especially because she's not a traditionally beautiful woman, and she was able to thrive and achieve success when she was surrounded in an era where there was a lot more traditionally beautiful women that were being cast as female leads. And a number of iconic roles. Right. Yeah. Like, to her credit. It's her best performance. Shit. Oh no, I have to look at the list of her movies. Um Best or my favorite? Whatever. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I know my answer already, so it doesn't matter. But uh I'll I'll wait. But uh so yeah, I think Ripley here, not only in terms of like her physical might and how she's able to I think you got it right. Resilience, like her her ability to just keep continuing on, is a trait that makes her strong. She speaks truth to power consistently, and like not just this movie. I mean, they 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 hit that immediately in this movie, like in the first twenty minutes. Right. That Ripley's like not afraid to just tell him like you're a fucking idiot. Like this is what you need to be doing. Um. So she takes control. She takes charge. Um. She doesn't rub it in anybody's face but she certainly kind of takes i think some measure of joy of being of of upending the traditional male roles so when she can use that exoskeleton like she knows she's getting ready to show them up right and she takes a little joy in it but she doesn't rub their faces in it um to the point where who's the um is that who's the guy that was in charge initially i can't remember he ends up dying and Bean ends up becoming in charge. But, like, that guy, like, thinks it's funny, actually, that, like, she's so skilled at, like, using it. Um, so she has a way of ingratiating herself, like, knowing how to play the game, the like, the boys club game, and ingratiating herself enough into that to get what she wants. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of really positive qualities about this. Right. They add in the third one, and the only interesting thing I thought about the third one in her character is they add a sexual nature to her character that's not there in the previous two. Um, where she gets woken up from cryo after whatever, like another 200 years or something. And within maybe like 12 hours, uh, she's talking to Charles Dance and is just like a little bit more tactful, basically like, hey, you want to fuck? Like, and just shows that she's like that confident that like, you know, here's a right. physical urge that I need and it needs to be fulfilled. And um, well, she's also spent 300 years like, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right. Uh, but 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 I just think it's like I thought that was an interesting yeah addition in three, even though I didn't think it was a very good movie. So maybe that's that that that's an interesting question. Then do you think? Obviously, there's no time for it in Alien, and really, there's no time for it in Alien. Sure. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't. Look at something like Starship Troopers is a good example. Right. So I think the Starship Troopers is like the spiritual successor to the Alien franchise. Sure. And just in terms of like, I know it's like its own thing and whatever, but. Yeah, it's a par- the way they parody it. and all those kind of things. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, they make that movie like, they have like, sex is like a central part of the beginning of that movie. Sure. In an effort to like get you, because it's about the bombast of. The visual aspect and it's just mm-hmm. another thing that they can like sure. visually titillate you with. Right. It never is in the alien universe. Never. Is about that. And yeah. that's the only time is in the beginning of three. Her and whatever that guy's name, uh, the, the character's name is, but the doctor in three um, played by um, Charles Dance, um, who looks younger there to me than he did in um, The Golden Child, like as... Um, Sada Numspa. Yeah. Um, but he... Um, Brother Numsi. Yeah, Brother Numsi. <laughs> um, I was thinking about that scene the other day when I was watching this movie. <laughs> Dear Brother Numsi. Um, she sleeps with him. That's it. That's in the, in the entire franchise. Like, that's 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 it. Like, that's the only sexual scene um, in the entire thing. There's, like, some implied threats to, like, the idea of, like potential rape like in three yeah. but there, there's there's some sexuality in um prometheus i guess yeah i don't can't really count that just because it's i'm just thinking about the story weaver ones but um i actually like that movie I but, like you, but you but you thinking about four real quick and it's the only thing i'll say about it besides the fact that it's fucking <sighs> awful is i do think it inspired a generation like people that are like our age or 10 years older than us or so um it inspired a generation to start including more strong females like like it inspired we like Whedon wanted to write that because like you look at Whedon's track record after the fact in yeah. terms of like how he what he writes and um doesn't do a good job of it but i think that like it certainly he wanted to probably write that because it's something that inspired Fired him when he was younger. That makes sense. Um, oh, um, so what's yeah? What's your best movie? It's a three three part answer. Oh, there's okay. three movies. Okay. Um, Year of Living Dangerously, uh-huh. um, Death and the Maiden, and The Ice Storm. Death and the Maiden's the right answer. See, I like her performance in The Ice Storm. I think a little more. Yeah, that's good. If I, I only I had to pick one, The Ice Storm is the best performance hmm. because it's. I I like Death and the Maiden a lot. Death and the Maiden is a very, even though it's a very well-directed movie, it's a very contrived setting, right? Like, it's a very, like, unnatural, specific setting that she's in. Right. Whereas the Ice Storm is something that, like, it's just two days in a life, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. like, it's, whenever people, ha- like, are able to have really compelling performances in those kind of roles, like, to me, it always is mm-hmm. more... You're really dangerously is a really good movie too, though. It is, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. any final thoughts on this? No, I mean, like, I'm sure that anyone listening to our podcast has probably seen Aliens, so right. 
Sure. Go watch it again because it's still fun. It is. I, I was surprised by that it, that, it, that it held just, up as well as it does. Just appreciate Sigourney Weaver in 1986, like being the biggest badass yeah, in right. the film. So. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay, so number two on your list is the psychological thriller Black Swan from 2010, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Starring Natalie Portman, Milo Kunis, Vincent Casal, Barbara Hershey, Winona Ryder. Has an 84% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 84% from audiences. Hmm. Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so the <clears throat> general plot of the movie is um, uh, Portman is an aspiring ballerina um, who's up for the lead role in uh, adaptation of Tchaikovsky's, um, what is it, The Swan Princess or whatever? The Swan Lake. Swan Lake, right. Um, she kind of embodies the elements of the white swan, which is supposed to be like pure and innocent, and um, but doesn't quite have, it doesn't have the um, more like sensual dark qualities that are needed from the black swan, which are sort of embodied by the Mila Kunis character, who's like a new addition to the ballet troupe. Um the movie's a chronicle of Portman's kind of like descent into almost madness at her need to try and be perfect to get this role. Like, so she can play, um, both the white swan and the black swan. Um, there's a lot of, <clears throat> I would say the majority of the movie is where you have an unreliable narrator. Cause you're kind of seeing it from Portman's perspective where you don't know if the things she's seeing are actually happening or just like her own, sort of like I don't know like crazy conception of the world around her um I mean like there's she thinks that she murders Mila Kunis at one point which she obviously doesn't do um there's some other stuff you and I have talked about this offline where interactions with her mother um interactions with like other people in the world that I don't think actually happen I think they're all like in her head um to the point where she does eventually like give this you know bravura performance as the swan princess but has like stabbed herself in a so do you believe that's real then yeah i think that that only because i think at that point this is getting really far ahead of ourselves I, i think because the way that he pulls the camera back he he follows her falling and that's very dreamy, like her falling into the um, mattress to the side of the mm-hmm. um, the riser or whatever. To see, like, her joy and her acceptance that she's finally, like, achieved, like, this perfection she sought. And then it pulls back and there's, like, actually, like, a cacophony of, like, outside sound and, like, people feel, like, real. And it's not filmed in a dreamy way at all. And, like, they've realized that she has this wound. And I think that's the only time that, like, you're seeing things from someone else's perspective. Okay. Um, and when it cuts away from, like, showing, like, the wound and, like, their fear, it's her just saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm perfect or whatever mm-hmm. the last lines are. Um, so, yeah, I think that she has, like, injured herself in, like, a psychotic break at some point. Um, but I think the whole movie is, like, really just Aronofsky's metaphor for, like, an artist trying to achieve perfection in their art and, like, what you have to sacrifice both from a like a personal like human perspective from like your um like your own humanity and also like your attachment to the outside world to become like artistically perfect 
Sure. Like, you can't leave anything of yourself behind. Like, you have to give everything of yourself. And I think that's the metaphor to her, like, actually, like, possibly fatally wounding herself is, like, that was the ultimate price that she had to pay for this moment of perfection was, like, basically giving her life for it. Um, it's interesting that I always see this described as a, a horror film. And to me, I don't know that I think of it as a horror film. Actually, I mean, I don't think of it as a horror film. I think it has scenes that are disturbing and horrific, but I think it's more of like a very intimate psychological thriller that just is done brilliantly by Aronofsky. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing movie, but it's done in a way um, that feels more horrific from her perspective. But ultimately, she's not truly i don't think influencing the outside world with her internal trauma i think it's all internal um and all personal mm-hmm. so um portman is amazing in this movie like her i think the portman is is a really talented actress and i think that she's done some really um impressive roles in her life but just the way that she the way that she interacts with Kunis, because that's like her foil for the majority of the movie, even though in reality it's kind of her like interacting with her own personal demons. And I don't know, there's just a there's there's definitely a fragility and innocence to it that is harshly juxtaposed by an incredibly like self serving and like she doesn't care about anyone else. Like her goal is only to be the best in this role that she can be. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, but they're really like, if the general theme of the movie is that the actress or the performer, the ballerina has to find the balance between the virginal white swan and the sultry black swan. It's a great performance, like bridging those two, you know, Sure. Extremes. And I mean, the idea is that she's, in order to find that black swan, the black swan to a large degree is a metaphor for the, like, Jungian shadow. Sure. And, like, she has to confront that aspect of herself in order to merge the two together to create perfection. I mean, it's what Jung talks about, like, in terms of, like, actually being a complete whole human being is being able to recognize that shadow and incorporate it without letting take take it take over and um it seems like that's what she has to do as an artist in order to reach perfection right but even early on like she's one of the more i don't know what this says about me one of the more like uncomfortable scenes of the movie is early on when she's like like individually wrapping her toes and like cutting apart like the slippers and stuff and doing these things to contort her feet perfectly into them so that they can be as tight as possible and she can like go up on point like as easily and like as extreme as she can and Mm -hmm. it's just there's a lot of things that he does in the movie that show just this fierce level of like determination and self-dedication to achieving like this artistic beauty and it's I don't know. There's other small things later too. Like, and I mentioned this to you, you know, when she, 
this person who's like at times incredibly like doubtful of themselves and almost afraid of like the challenge of like stepping up to the challenge of doing this thing that they want, you know, like taking that plunge to do the thing can so quickly like turn like in, in the, towards the end of the movie in the um, dressing room scene when she murders the Mila Kunis character, like just like smashing her into the window and then like, you know, grabbing the um, shard of glass and like stabbing her and just dragging the body into the bathroom. And then instead of like, doing what you know you figure would be right just like goes and performs Mm -hmm. and that's what leads to her like having like the first part of that like amazing performance because at that point she's been like dropped and right um the vincent cassell like director um tomas or whatever his name is Mm -hmm. is um angry with her for like what are you doing like why are you so distracted um some other small things. So I was trying to think of like other things that I felt were a hundred percent just like metaphor in this movie, um, as to like the artistic process and sort of like giving like all of yourself. Man, I wish I would have written them down because there was like a number of things that I saw where I was like, oh, okay, like I think that that's just a hundred percent metaphor for the way that he's filming this. I think the stuff with the mother. I mean, those are really powerful scenes when she's arguing with her mom. About, like, how she she needs to go, she needs to perform, and I don't think that's real. Like, we talked about this, and I don't really think... I think that's her fighting with herself and her own perceptions of, like... Well, her mother's perception of her, and also her mother's <clears throat> failing as a ballerina to, like, be, a, be unable to move beyond, like, just being, like, a supporting player in, like, some ballet. Um... I think that Aronofsky does a great job with, like, the way he films, like, and similar to Cleo, the way he films stuff in mirrors, the way he films, the way he's willing to play with, like, camera speed and the filtering of, like, light, like, diffusion of light and just, like, visual effects to show, like, her disorientation and her... kind of self-obsession and self-loathing that's kind of like mirrored there mm-hmm. and the way that he does a lot of things like i mean and it's completely obvious because you know she's always wearing like like white jackets white underwear and mila kunis is always wearing like black everything um except for when they go out to the scene where i think is like really like emblematic of like the actual psychotic break on her part in the movie, which is the the club scene mm-hmm. when she goes back and they have like the lesbian sex in her room and they're both wearing like the black underwear, I think is emblematic of the fact that that's Mila Kunis is not there. Like, cause Mila Kunis's character, Lily or whatever exists in the real world. Sure. As her understudy. She's just another ballerina in the troupe. Right, and Lily was trying to get her fucked up the night before her performance as, like, a manipulative means, I think, to see if she could grab that part from her. I believe I believe all that's true. I don't think... See, I, I, don't, know if I, th- I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if Lily's actually ever even there. Mm. I think that... At the club and everything? Yeah, I think Natalie Portmore mm. out by herself. Mm. I don't know. I just... I, I think that's the psychotic break. I think that the pressure mm. that that next day was going to be... Mm. Is she's like, I'm just going to go out and have one drink to herself. 
and then goes and gets drunk and gets drugged and comes back and fantasizes all these things. Yeah. And I don't know that, especially because Lily is so, I think there's a couple of early scenes where Mila Kunis's character is actually a separate character from Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. Early on when she's first introduced, you know, as being like in, in the movie. Right. And the end scene when she comes to her dressing room and is like, you know, I'm sorry, like, if you felt like whatever, like, you're great, you deserve this role. I think that's real. And her seeing Natalie Portman, like, bleeding out, I think is real. I don't know that any other time that she interacts, I don't know how much of that is actually, Mm. like, true life and how much of it is Natalie Portman's character, Nina, right? Yeah. Nina, um... Like, warring with herself and basically just, like, projecting that onto this person that she's maybe physically attracted to, but is definitely, like, envious of in terms of, like, her beauty and her talent. And that envy leading to, like, this almost, like, professional animosity and personal animosity. And I think that's also her warring with herself over, like, her inability to not be this, like, fragile, virginal, whatever. I mean, it's, it's Aronofsky's movies, for the most part, always, like, elicit at least, like, a decent amount of conversation, I think, because they do play with reality and, like, what you're actually supposed to believe is truly happening as opposed to what's actually, sure like, what you're seeing on screen. Um, I mean, obviously, Pi and uh, Requiem for a Dream right. play with those ideas a lot, Um the wrestler probably being like his most direct. Well, I mean, not even possibly, like definitely his most direct, most, yeah, like human film and a really interesting companion piece to this movie. Looking at it, the idea of art from a different perspective, right? And like, personal, but sacrifice. still the still, but still the same running theme of personal yeah. sacrifice. Yeah, and I, I mean, Aronofsky in a lot of ways is all about you know what is what do you have to give up. Or what do you have to reduce yourself to in order to find whatever it is you're looking for in life? Yeah. You know? Yeah. From, like, the science fiction aspect of Pi through the more, like, depraved aspects of Requiem. And then the wrestler, which is, like, lowbrow artistry. I mean, you can't even... It's hard to even call it artistry, but that's what it is. I mean, that's what that character is pushing for is like, you know, to maintain himself as being great at what he does. Sure. And then this like highbrow performance of, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most well-known like ballets. So going back to that idea that you stated initially, the idea that um, there's something that breaks from tradition or is non-traditional. Is that here? Um, I think it's just, one of the best examples. I, I think it's impossible not to be. I don't know if enchanted is the right word, but like. I'm trying to think of like the best way to put this. I think that it's impossible to not. Just be completely. Focused on Portman in her role. And I think that every time that Portman's on the screen, and a lot of this goes towards Aronofsky's direction, but it also, like, 
I'd say 70% of it is her performance itself. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it's one of the reasons why this, the title of this was most compelling female performances. Cause to me, this is like, th- this probably should have been number one in terms of compelling performances. Cause I really think that it's very difficult to pull your eyes away from Natalie Portman's character. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of like, I don't know what she went through to film this movie. I know that her and Kunis spent like months like, like learning ballet. Three or four months training. <clears throat> um, but there feel it, it feels like there's a lot of personal sacrifice in this movie as well on a performer's part where she just like throws herself so much into that role because of the levels of like mania and hysteria and sadness and like just all the gamut of emotions that Portman's able to convey brilliantly and Mm -hmm. believably to the point where like we could argue for a long time about like what is real and what's not real in that movie. And you know, as, as like a, like a one B like Kunis also does a fantastic job, like in her role, even if she's just playing like the, the shadow self of Natalie Portman, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's another, like it's a brilliant performance. So this movie is now nine years old, believe it or not. So this movie comes out a few years after I kind of just give up and stop watching movies. Right. And I've been hearing about this movie pretty much since it came out about how great it is. And like in the press and the media from you, from Orion, from all these people that I know, it's like how, how good this movie is. I didn't watch it until now. Um, and I'll be honest. One of the things, the doubts that I had in my head was as much as I like Natalie Portman, I didn't think Natalie Portman had the center until I watched the movie because all those things, that range of emotions you're talking about, it's not done in any kind of like, I thought that she was captivating and charismatic and charming and cute and all these other things that I thought there was a limit to in terms of her acting ability. I thought that she probably had a limited set of roles I did not expect the subtlety of all that wide range of emotions from her because nothing, none of those emotions you talked about are ham-fisted or overdone. uh They're all extremely subtle through the quiver of a mouth, through eyes, through, I mean, you, and I think that subtlety is one of those things that keeps you captivated on her. The entire time, so yeah, I do think it's a direction. I, I agree, but I, 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 I think it's her performance, and I think it's how the depth of that performance. Right. And um, I was, I, I, I watched, I finished watching this, and I told both both of you is that like I thought this, um, it's like I watched it, and I thought it was an instant classic. Like it's like I knew it as soon as it was over that this is a damn great movie. Um, and a One lot of the best of, films of this past decade, sure, and a lot of that has to do with her. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody I think is good in this. I mean, Barbara Hershey's good in her role. Um, Vincent Casal, who is a guy I love anyway, but I, for that role, I think he nails it. You know, um, for for what he's supposed to do in it. But this is her movie, and um, yeah, she's the largest part of that. I think. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, it's interesting because you can see elements of previous performances from her in this. Like, there's times when she's talking. Where you feel like it's almost like watching, um, 
her character in Garden State. I can't remember sure. that character's yeah. name, but just like the the plucky, like I don't know, like ingenue type thing. And I don't know. There's just yeah, she's the swings between like emotional like highs and lows and like the different aspects of herself. I mean, it's it's just it's it's brilliant, and it's a really like as a metaphor for like the artistic process. I think it's a pretty fantastic movie too. So the criticism that I found on this need my glasses because it's come to that point in life um, <laughs> is about that aspect actually this uh, about the, the 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 meaning behind this movie um it's from david denby from the new yorker he says black swan is trashy and incoherent aronofsky for all of his gifts is a gaudy maestro opportunistic and insecure as an artist almost every sequence is shot with a handheld camera and poor nina can't go anywhere not even down a corridor without the camera stalking her Aronofsky keeps us in a state of anxiety from beginning to end. He's such an extremist that he never creates a normal reality to take off from, so the outbreaks of violence don't shock as much as they might. But Aronofsky has coaxed her into giving a dolorous performance that's often on the verge of caricature. She suppresses tears, then trembles, cries, crumbles. She's always collapsing, and her neck cords stand out like a ship's rigging. Cold-eyed viewers will see Black Swan less as a movie about ballet than a movie about the torture of a young woman. Dance lovers will find it so over-the-top that they will likely to be amused. The picture is too bizarre to be a desecration of Swan Lake, which is as indestructible as Macbeth. Black Swan says the dancer must enter into a rational and the erotic, even destroy herself in order to make art. That is, if you don't get laid and you aren't ready to kill your rival yourself, you can't be a great dancer. But the director's erotic and punitive notion of art is his own obsession, not the dancer's. His movies are about people destroying their bodies, the drug addicts and Requiem, Mickey Rourke, razoring his flesh and the wrestler. In Black Swan, Aronofsky goes all the way with his taste for mutilation. He imposes his own bloodlust on a woman's mind and then turns her into a myth of sacrifice. Black Swan is a pompous, self-glorifying, and generally unpleasant interpretation of an artist's tasks. The movie has the romantic's fascination with death without their spiritual eloquence, which turns morbidity into art. <clears throat> Any reaction to that? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> I don't agree with that. It's one of those things where it's... it's I don't necessarily disagree right. with mm-hmm. a lot of the sentiment. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of the description. I disagree with the sentiment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not the interpretation that the director wanted a viewer to have. And look, I mean, it was polarizing when it came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it made a lot of like best of lists, but there were people that really hated this movie um, when it first, you know, premiered. Um, so I'll talk about a couple small things that he says, like the tight shots of her are times when she's, it's almost like in Repulsion, there are certain times when he closes in on Deneau's face where you know that you're now seeing things only from her perspective. That that's not the real world anymore. It's her interpretation of the real world because she's crazy. And this is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's scenes in this movie that are actually happening in real life. But anytime that he like tightens on her, 
that's her own mania or her own whatever. And like, maybe it's morbid. I don't know. I mean, in the end, she achieves what she wanted. So I guess that's the question about any kind of like sacrifice you have in your life. Like, you know, is any sacrifice worth is do the ends ever like justify the means, I suppose. And I think that Aronofsky, I mean, from an artistic perspective, I think he thinks that they do. Or at least wants you to ask the question yourself. I think he's at least asking the question, yeah. I mean, I can see why... The fact that he equated Swan Lake with Macbeth um, makes me think that he went in with a different perspective. Like, probably a love for Swan Lake. And I don't... I mean, I don't have that. So, to me, it's like... Like, I know what Swan Lake is. And, Mm. you know, I know the story, but I don't get been out of shape because of its use as like the plot device in this movie um i think it's more about like like what you said like i think it's more of like a Jungian question about your shadow self it's about you know the duality of a person and like what someone has inside them that they have to overcome in order to like achieve what they want to achieve and i mean aronofsky's always going to make his movies some ways like visually challenging that's just his thing Mm -hmm. but i don't think that it's bad because of that and i think that he's i i don't know i i wondered when i read it if the review isn't a little sexist myself that's interesting just because what does he say that he imposes his own bloodlust on a woman's mind and then turns her into a myth of sacrifice. It's it's like it's okay if these people are in, in all of his movies are striving for these things they want and will do anything that it takes to achieve that. But in order to put that sentiment on a woman's mind to him is grotesque yeah i mean like maybe i can see that interpretation just because it's a male director and a female lead right but is but it's as if women aren't capable of having of sacrificing things to get what they want like and going to any depths i mean yeah that's a i i think that's i think that's a little like i get what he's saying don't get me wrong the, the thing that i disagree with the most in this movie is that i don't find portman's performance to border on like parody no i don't either or like right, that's what i was just caricature. saying is like i no, I, mean, I, I, I don't agree that... with that i think it was very i think it was very nuanced and very subtle <clears throat> now is there times where she's like manic and over the top like sure but i think that's just supposed yeah. to be part of what that character is going through internally <clears throat> most i mean what is she like 22 or 23 is she supposed yeah, to be i yeah. think you know i mean but it's like there's times where she acts like a 14 year old Especially in those scenes with her mother. Specifically 23, I think that that's said. Because I, I they, think it is, yeah. They sort of imply that she's, like, getting towards the end of yeah. when she's going to be able to be this, like, prima ballerina. Right, yeah. But I, um... But, I mean, she acts like a, like a, like a, like a, like a snooty teenager at times. Like, when she's, like, yelling. And maybe that is all fantasy, I don't know. But, yeah. regardless, like, she's acting like a, like a 14-year-old. It's, like, slamming the door on her mom and all these kind of things. And that's over the top because I think she's in that much of a state of arrested development. 
because she yeah, hasn't yeah, but... grown up. And that's part of what this process is for this 23-year-old or whatever that's going through all this of trying to find that part of her that's been missing. I mean, the irony of the whole thing is she's invested her so self, self so much in the perfection of the physical like in terms of her performance and like making that perfect that she's right. not lived the life that she needs to live in order to take this role on. She doesn't have the experience, life experience. Yeah. I feel like black Swan is a movie that you could almost like we, we talk about that heat podcast where it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a yeah. minute of heat or whatever uh-huh. they, it's called yeah. where you could watch like the black Swan and like, yeah, one to five minute increments and like yeah. un- analyze everything that's happening in the scene. Both in terms of like the acting and the direction and like the set, and yeah. cinematography. And I agree, like. and I think that's I think that's what I uh, thought when it ended. Even if I didn't think of it like that, it's like I think that's a sign of a of a classic. Yeah. I mean, when you can do that, um, right? I think it's a fantastic movie. I, I would like to do like maybe the top ten of the two thousand tens because I think Black Swan is is towards the top of that list. Yeah. It would have been a great idea a month ago. <laughs> right. Uh, like a week ago. Oh, right, yeah. Whatever. Um. You gotta, gotta give me a couple weeks to get away from, from the decade. <laughs> okay, so... Number one on your list is Three Colors Red. This is part of a trilogy done by... Krzysztof Kozlowski, um, in 1994, it was white, blue, and red, and it stars Irene Jacob and Jean-Louis Trompteneau. Are you glad that you had to look up his name last week so you just knew how to pronounce it? Um, I still wrote down the pronunciation (laughs) again, so I didn't fuck it up, but, um, although one of the weirder coincidences, maybe the weirdest so far in this podcast is the idea that we're doing the top five spaghetti Westerns last week with Jean-Louis Trondeau in the great silence. Right. And then this week we're doing the most compelling, compelling female performances. And then in 1994, we're also getting the same guy. Right. Um, it's a very strange thing. Those French actors were long lived and they, they did a lot of roles. So Yeah. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's, uh, so high here? So I struggled a lot. So just as like a behind the scenes, like leading up to a podcast over the course of the week before I try and think about like, cause I don't write any notes. I don't have anything like written down. <clears throat> I look the movies up on Wikipedia and I have them on my phone, but I just like refer back for like names usually and stuff. So I was trying to think for the past week, like, how do I talk about this movie? Because there's a lot of plot that happens in this movie, but I feel like when you say it out loud, like, it sounds really boring. Like, um, Irene Jacob, whatever, is a aspiring model, like, part-time model that lives in France that... Also a student. Yeah, she's going to university, um... She kind of has this run-in with an older man that lives in her building because she hits his dog. At the same time, there's, like, a guy that's a younger guy that's, like, on the cusp of becoming a judge. And he's, like, studying for whatever you call that. Like, the boards or, like, Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, 
And he's in a relationship with another woman. Um, Valerie or whatever is the Irene's character. And she's in a relationship with a guy who lives in England. There's another guy that's kind of like... I don't know. There's all these people that are kind of like assholes that live around them. And it's just... It's hard to explain. So, mm-hmm. so she runs. She hits this guy's this judge's dog. He's, he's a, pregnant, right? Right. He's and, a retired judge, right? But he's he's a re, right. He's a retired judge. He's a recluse. She finds out that he's listening to his neighbors right. through this setup that he has in his house, and he records them and he listens to their conversations. Um, at first, I mean, she's horrified by the whole thing. He gives her the opportunity to ter- to tell the neighbors. She doesn't take it. Um, uh. She's captivated by this judge still, nonetheless. They form this kind of bond where um, she still kind of keeps coming back to him and seeing him. Um, Meanwhile, there's this young kid who's trying to become a judge. His girlfriend ends up cheating on him. He witnesses it. Um, The judge ends up turning himself in based off of what she tells. She tells him he should turn himself in. The old retired judge turns himself in for listening to his neighbors the young judge's first court case is overseeing this overseeing guy's this guy's trial. Right. right. And it all kind of like leads up to this even more kind of coincidental set of events. Ridiculously where, coincidental set of events. Absolutely. Where you find out the old judge, like the reason he's a re- kind of like a, a recluse is because he lost faith in humanity because basically the young judge his story is actually the story of the old judge as well, almost exactly, where right. his wife cheated on him. The wife's lover um, <clears throat> was his last court case, and he got to pronounce him guilty for owning property that there's a fire on or something like that. And right. then um, she goes to meet her, uh, Valentine goes to meet her boyfriend on this charter boat, um, who's like uh, she has this long distance relationship going across the English Channel that the young judge is also August or whatever is also on right is right. also on with his dog right <laughs> with his do- right and there's all these coincidences and it ends up that um the boat sinks yeah there's the two of them that are one of the seven survive they're two of the seven survivors of of this and that's... yeah you know who four of the other ones are. The leads from oh yes the other right. three colors white and three right. colors blue blue right yeah yeah right yeah. right and so, then in the end so there's an early thing where she's getting her photograph she's getting she's at a yeah photo shoot Bro- brilliant shot yeah and the one picture they choose to use they say she looks sad in the picture like mm-hmm. it's like like one of the least contrived shots they take but she looks sad. Mm-hmm. And it's mirrored at the shot at the end on the television of her looking at August. But now, like, maybe that's because she gets it's predicted that or Kern has a dream that she's 50 years old and living with the man that she is meant to be with, that she's truly in love at this point. And you're it's kind of implied through the way that Kozlowski shoots the movie that he's the judge that august is the man that she's supposed to be with even though she's on this boat to go see this distant kind of like emotionally and physically distant lover across the sea yeah and that them surviving and like seeing each other is like maybe the catalyst that brings them together and Mm -hmm. it's reflected in like the same shot of her face but with actual like 
human emotion on it as opposed to just being like distant and sad. And... Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you did a good job. I <laughs> would never have, like I, I would not have been able to to say all those things. It would have gone on forever. Yeah. So I would have kept going back and forth and talking about like the visual metaphors and symbols that right, Kozlowski yeah. uses. <clears throat> um, this is a brilliantly directed movie. Yeah. And especially in the way that Kozlowski uses repeat motifs and light and angle and the way he shoots people. I mean, because constantly... Um, Valentin's character is shot either above or below, especially Kern, the Trontano character. Like she's either, they're never really like on the same level having conversations. She's a, she's a, either he's sitting at his desk and she's standing above him or she's sitting at a lower angle than he's like sitting above her. There's a lot of times when like she's like at a completely different level of like the street than another character. And like, she's standing on a stage and the characters like below her. And it's just a lot of things about how throughout this woman's life, she's never on equal footing with the people that she's engaged with. There's also a lot of stuff with his use of the color red. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a pretty big motif throughout all three of these movies, but like the with broken glass like once people like once it's revealed the kern's been like listening to the conversations like they throw rocks through his windows and there's broken glass and then later when they're bowling you know there's the pack of like the marlboro reds and there's the broken glass next to it and it's just a lot of small things that represent like a lot i don't know it's it's a very like coincidence fate yeah like Fate, but is it fate really fate? Like, is or is it really coincidence, or is there really like truly like fate in the world, or is sure. it just that you know because it's coincidence that August happens to catch his girlfriend having sex with another man, kinda, but it also is fate that he does it because it's what leads him to like. Right, I there, there's an old Churchill line, something like how. Something like about the lines of how fate and coincidence are the same thing when you look at it in hindsight. <clears throat> um, and it's very much reminds me of this. It's like, yeah, depending on your perspective, like, you know, the thing that is coincidence could also seem like fate if you, like, try to put, put the pieces together. One like, of the things that helps him to become a judge is the fact that his book falls open to a specific... Um, which is the same thing that happens to August. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. like, that's what helps. Yeah. Him. I mean, the August's story uh, is the same as the old judge Kern. Like it's, it's ex- almost exactly the same. Um, the idea being that it's like he himself Kern is the same soulmate that like she finds in August. Like, right. They're, they're, they're the, well, I think that's one of the things that draws her back to him too, is like, mm-hmm the idea that she can't get past that this is yeah. that, that it's compelling her to like yeah i think there's a lot of other great stuff that's going on in this movie like the, the fact that like she's captivated or drawn to the idea of him listening to other people on the phone yes despite the, her misgivings originally yes um and her, and, and i mean i think people. she maintains that conviction like where she doesn't like it 
But she's also, you can tell she's intrigued by it. But other people are intrigued by it. Other people are doing it. Sure. But she's, the reason I think that she is both horrified and intrigued by it is because the the movie starts with a phone conversation she's having with her long distance boyfriend. Yes. And there's this, when she's talking, there's like these unspoken things that are being communicated in between the silences of their speech where she's like obviously maybe more in love with him than he is her. Right. And like, there's these things that like, um, and it's like, she thinks that I think she's like thinking about those communications and like, could you outside of being in the moment yourself, listen to those things and put the pieces together of what's really going on? Well, she has trouble with that anyway. She does, yeah. And again, like I think that's why it's like pretty brilliant that the way he films it where he almost never has her on level with anyone mm-hmm. else in the way that like she's communicating with someone. Like you you pointed something out. I can't remember what we watched a couple weeks ago. That one of your complaints was that it's very like static in the way that it was filmed mm-hmm. and that it felt like there wasn't a lot of movement. It was topsy turvy. Yes. This is like almost the opposite of that, where Topsy Turvy does did kind of feel like here's a camera I'm filming. It's more about the actors like acting and just filming them, whereas this is all. There's almost nothing in this movie that doesn't feel like completely purposeful mm-hmm. in the way that the shot is set, the way the camera's set, even the way that like minor things like books on a desk or a telephone or whatever is like positioned in the shot. Mm -hmm. And I don't want, it's probably coming off. Like I don't, there's so much that you can say about this movie. Like this is, I don't know much about Kozlowski aside from the three colors trilogy. I mean, I don't know if I've seen anything else of his other Mm -hmm. than that, but he's definitely a very purposeful and very almost like he's almost an ironic director in the sense that like, this is a romance, but it's almost an anti-romance until, like, it's just the idea that maybe at the end you're seeing, like, the very, very, very beginning of, like, the true romance of this woman's life. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with, like, basically, and again, like, to your point, like, juxtaposed with, you know, Kern's entire life that he's lived to that point and, like, mm-hmm. the things that he's experienced and you know, where it's, like, led him, that maybe you're seeing, like, the beginning of that, but going in a different direction? I don't know. Right. It's just... I don't know. It's a it's a beautiful movie. So... Yeah, it's almost like Kern might be able to get redeemed in some way through another person. Another person that's, like, basically living... The right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um, And he's almost, like, it's... There's also the interesting idea of, like, and this, I'm sure, is a very, like, European mindset. Maybe not. Maybe it's, like, universal. But the idea of, like, the judge is the arbiter of fate. Mm-hmm. That, like, all of these people have... And they feel like such small crimes, like, when you look at, like, when they talk about it. But, like, they all have, like, the fate of the person in their hand. Mm-hmm. And that idea of someone, like, holding, like, the... <clears throat> whatever, like... I hate to keep using the word fate, but, like, the 
like being able to like acquit someone that you might think was actually guilty but then like you acquit them and they go on to like live like a crime-free life or you put down an edict that like whatever like may like turn someone into a criminal or you've like Mm -hmm. i don't know the first time i saw this movie probably in like 95 i think i saw it when it came out on vhs sure um, I don't think I understood it at all. No, not at all. I thought the same thing. Um, <clears throat> I, I remember. It, I was I fifteen remember, when I saw it, and I had uh, twenty-five years later. Now it's like a completely different movie. It's interesting because, like, it's. I feel like I'm stumbling talking about it, but it's just because there's so much you can say about like small things in it. And again, I think it's. I think it's one of the more masterful films of the 1990s, just in terms of like a director being in complete control of every aspect of what's happening in the film. Mm-hmm. So to her performance, yeah. which is what matters right. the most, like in terms of the podcast, I, I think for as complex ideologically as this movie is, I think she does a really great job of never losing that element of like relatable humanity like i think that a lesser actress or maybe a lesser director directing a different actress might have almost become like a prop in it Mm -hmm. because in a lot of ways the movie is about more than just like the sum of its parts i guess Mm -hmm. but i don't think she ever loses that and there's really small moments like things like where she stumbles or she I don't know. It's just like there's. It, it, it's similar to the way that I was talking about, like Anna Karina in um, a woman is a woman, in that you feel her as like a real person in this movie, and she feels like a real person, and maybe that's because um, Kislowski allows <clears throat> for so many small moments of humanity to happen in the movie, where like you're allowed to like feel her, but like the one thing, and I don't know why, like I always go back to thinking about this. She's on a runway, like in a fashion show, and she stumbles a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she comes out, and it's just like a brief joke about, like, you know, almost falling on the runway or whatever. But it's like the look on her face and, like, the combination of self-realization and mild, like, mortification, but also, I don't know, like... There's a real human being that's processing information and what's happening and you can see it behind yes. her eyes going on and in every scene yeah like you're saying it's like she, yeah i i and i think tron knows the same way but we're focusing on her is that they just play the roles they are given and they play them masterfully as piece of a larger as pieces of a larger whole right and i think because kislowski allows them to do that mm-hmm. like it's not like for as like precious isn't the right word but for as like meticulous as his direction is it feels like it's very open in terms of like them being able to like infuse the role with like humanity yeah and it's weird because when you watch a director that's so you see it with tarantino i think sometimes Mm. like we always come back to tarantino but like there's very few like modern directors it's a generational thing we're always going to come back to where you can tell that his meticulous nature sometimes overrides the human element of a performance where a line of dialogue or 
like a physical reaction will feel kind of stilted or staged just because of everything that he has happening in that scene that he needs to have happen in his own way. <clears throat> and I feel like this movie is just as meticulous in the way that Kislowski films it as anything that Tarantino has done. Or Paul Thomas Anderson is another good example of somebody mm-hmm. that, for the most part, lets an actor just be an actor, mm-hmm. but controls every other aspect around the performance, but not necessarily the performance itself. And I think it's really similar here where, like, like you know you're watching a masterpiece when you watch it, but you're never, like burdened with the feeling that you're watching a masterpiece like i can't i can't think of another way to say it and i think that she does an amazing job of you know like kind of carrying that performance and being that person i agree there there's a scene there's a scene where the judge tells her go next door tell them i'm listening to their conversation because the the neighbors that he's listening to at that moment the husband is on the phone with a lover like he's having an affair with and she goes next door and the wife greets her and invites her inside the house and asks her if she wants anything she's like oh you must want my husband and the husband's still upstairs on the phone and she looks over and sees she's their child like a young young teen girl on the phone downstairs and the mo- and the mother's like oh stop the the wife is you know stop listening to your father like on the phone and the look that comes across her face when she realizes this young girl is listening to her father talk to the person he's ha- talk to the person he's having an affair with and you can look at her eyes and her facial expressions and read every single thing that's going through her mind and you don't need any dialogue for when she goes back to the judge and he's like, oh, you didn't do it. Um, she, you don't need any explanation. Like right. she's that good of an actress just through her eyes and her facial expressions. Yeah. I mean, she's been in some, she's been in a lot of movies. She's been in some really great movies. Like she was in, um, Orva Les Enfants and Double Life of Veronique. And this and like U.S. Marshals, <laughs> um, but yeah, she does an amazing job. And I think that like the reason that I made this number one, even though I love Portman's performance in Black Swan, is it like that performance is almost like superhuman in a lot of ways, whereas this is like just human, mm-hmm. like perfectly human. And perfectly believable. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I mean, again, like one one of the things that like, I know this is like a Swiss movie, but it takes place in France. So I consider it French. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things about like European films is that they can take like a small story and make it feel like something so much grander. And like, definitely. If there's any movie that does that, it's this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. There's, yeah, there's a whole lot that... Yeah. No, this is... Um, I At this point, I wouldn't even care about the performances necessarily. It's like this... If if this movie's on a list with these other movies, this movie's number one. Yeah. Like, it's that good. It is a fantastic movie. And I remember thinking when I was a teenager, I was like, oh yeah, I like that movie. Like, it was good. But it's like, I, 
I liked it before I even understood a damn thing about it. And I still don't. I, I realize now I understand less about the movie maybe than... Like, I understand more and I understand less at the same time. Like, there's 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 such a depth to this movie, I think, about just ideas you could talk about for the rest of your life. Um, yeah, this is... This is one that I'm glad I rewatched again. Um, that I probably would have never rewatched otherwise, because yeah. I wouldn't have taken the time. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've only seen four of Kozlowski's movies. Um, I forgot Irene Jacob. Like, she's in Double Life of Ronique, which is another one of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the three Colors movies. I mean, he's a he's a pretty masterful director, but he didn't direct all that many movies. Mm-hmm. Like in general, he died. I guess this is his last one. It is. He died not long after this. <clears throat> Makes you wonder, because he was pretty young when he died, like what he would have done if he would have lived longer. Yeah, I want I can't remember. I read something. He was working he was getting ready to work on something apparently. Like he was getting ready to start the process of a pre production and and died. Um it was some kind of famous adaptation. I can't remember what it was though. I'm it up now. Yeah, I've never seen Decalogue or anything. Um, says that he retired after yeah. Red. Oh, okay. It might have been a review that I read that said that he had planning on working on something then, if it's not on like Wikipedia or something along those lines. Yeah, okay. but anyway, it's a it's yeah. a great movie and definitely yeah. absolutely like worth watching and available on the Criterion Channel. Right, all so, three of them are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And Double Life of Veronique. Oh, is that on there? Yeah. Okay. All right, so that's our list for the week. Um, I uh, next week we have the top five horror movies of 1978. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, so that will end the month of January. That is, um, that was that's our first random episode where yeah. it was chosen randomly just through website like generators. Doesn't feel like it though, right? It does it not feel trash. no, no. It yeah, feels like not. you plan you, you purposely like somehow rigged the entire thing. But um, so we'll be doing that uh, next week, and then we'll take the last week of January off, and then February we'll be back with the top five winter movies, the top five. Uh, black exploitation movies, and then we will have our first third man podcast in a while, where we will be talking about the uh, best Denzel Washington movie. Um, was that decided? Yeah, that's what was decided. No. Yeah, well, I don't remember that. I might have been drunk. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I I didn't think you were, but um, that, I mean, I'm looking yeah, forward to that. That's, that's okay. That's <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what was decided. I yeah. forgot about the winter movies too. I got to start right, thinking yeah. about that. So, um, as always, if uh, you have any feedback, you can email us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Instagram and uh, Facebook. Uh, Other than that, thank you for listening to us, and have a great night. Yep, have a good day.